Hello, friends. Today is part two of our conversation on Jane Eyre. So if you did not catch part one, go back to last week's episode and catch up with that. We hope you love this conversation, mostly about Mr. Rochester and Sinjin and who they are, how they treat Jane, and the controversy that it stoked at the time that it was released. So enjoy it, and I'll see you on the other side. Welcome to Book Fair. We help thoughtful women find wholesome, life-affirming books for themselves and their families. Are you tired of picking up the latest new release and finding it full of junk you don't want in your life? You are in the right place. This show shares curated content and we do it together within a fun, book-loving community. So pull up a chair at the table and join the feast. All right, so we got to jump to Mr. Rochester. (laughs) What do you guys think? Do you like him? Oh, Eddie. <laughs> I mean, listen, this is, might be the uneducated opinion, but I do not like him. And I mean, that's fine. I don't have to marry him, but I, I don't, I don't like him. I don't think he deserves her. Okay. Tell us why. Yeah. So you, you made a mistake and there's a lot of understanding, especially when you live it. It's easy for us to judge his mistake in marrying that lady because we have Google now and we have a more connected world. They did not have that then. So the mistake he made stands out more to us, but it was that was legitimate. He was entrapped in, in a way. But, but you did go down there and get swept away by a pretty face. Like, it might be understandable, but that's your weakness. And then you, you sought to hide it because you felt like it wasn't your fault. And I thought that was, I thought that was weakness on his part, even though it was a while back and surely he's grown from it, but he continued to do it right up until someone caught him on his wedding day. I don't think I could have ever come back from that. I think that would have been a bridge too far for me. And I could have, I could have never trusted him again. You knew how much it hurt to be entrapped and you tried to do it to me. Yeah. I have more sympathy for sympathy for him on, upon this reading And I think with each reading, I've thought a little bit more towards him. I think in a funny way, his character supports the sanctity of marriage. Now hear me out, (laughs) because he also really doesn't. (laughs) But, But I think the sanctity of marriage undergirds the book. Even though it's pushed to quite a limit, Rochester never puts Bertha away. And for the time when there are asylums for people like Bertha that are the stuff of nightmares, mm-hmm. he does not do that to her. He keeps her where she is safe. And anytime there is an issue beyond Grace Poole's ability with her, what does she do? She calls for Rochester. He comes running. And he soothes things, takes care of things. He's not up there beating her. Mm-hmm. I don't know exactly what he does to help Bertha, but it's not violence or anything like that. That was not lost on me. But I do have a question. In that time, if he had put her in asylum, would he have been still considered married to her? Yeah. Well, that was the thing is that... That's the deal, though, that she, changes it for me. Is that once she... Once it's this is known. the way he kind of got trapped is that essentially once it was known that she was insane, 
he was not legally allowed to divorce her. Mm-hmm. So unlike today, now I'm not saying this would have been the right thing to do, but I'm just saying, I, I've read another book where there was kind of a similar situation and he was caring for an ex spouse that went insane and he always respected her and cared but he divorced her and married again because she was out of her mind now again i'm not saying i agree with that but i'm just saying he did not have that option he and that's to me that's the part of the story that is the most tragic and like pulls on the heartstrings when he talks about he was trying to give her chances even though she was unfaithful to him from the beginning and then her you know, craziness keeps accelerating, accelerating. By the time he realizes where this is headed and that there's going to be no coming back from it, and this it's is not someone he can spend his time, then when he tries to get a divorce, he can't because it's illegal to divorce someone. Mm-hmm. So, and so he was doing the good thing by waiting it out in the beginning and trying to work through that. It's not lost on me. I realize I'm grading him very hard, harshly, but I think when you just look at people like Helen right beside her, that, you know, it does not matter how hard I'm going to do the right thing. I think it just, it stands out. In real life, I would certainly have so much more compassion because it's it's wildly complex and I'm making it very black and white. I, I know that. No, it is. And it's, you know, he in his mind, after all the years of suffering, I mean, to him... My wife is dead. Mm-hmm. Like who I actually married is no more. Mm-hmm. And this shell of a crazy person is not a wife. So was it right for him to pretend she didn't exist and not even tell Jane about? It? No, of course it wasn't. Like that was a terrible <laughs> thing to do. But you do kind of understand, at least I do have sympathy for him in his own mind and heart just saying, I'm not married. I could have I could have sat in sympathy more had he chosen to bring her in on the story and give her the choice about her side. It would have been heart-wrenching then to me that he was dealing with all that. I think yep. it it just takes it from me a little bit there of like, well, now I don't I don't I'm not able to feel sorry for the thing that you actually deserve a lot of sympathy for because I I don't I don't like what you did in a big way. Yep. Yeah. Yep. He's beca- become a little more of a sympathetic character for me. And I've been like, Jane, why do you like him? <laughs> There's red flags everywhere. But <laughs> unhealthy. <laughs> He's yeah. very immature. He is very flawed, but he has an a character arc. Mm-hmm. He grows and changes. So but something else I saw about him upon this reading that I haven't seen before because I didn't want to see anything good about him in the past is how thoughtful he is or can be like after the fire before he runs out of his soaking wet room he's like Jane sit here put your feet up yeah here's this blanket Mm -hmm. little things like that and he's even that way with other people like Mr. Mason he was very Briefly and brusquely, but solicitous in that same way with him. And I just didn't notice that about Rochester before. That if he were, if his affections were better trained, he might be a very thoughtful husband. Mm -hmm. He treats her like a dove as far as her physical. I mean, when he's, she's helping him limp home, he's like, you couldn't possibly carry me. Don't. And she's like, well, I'm, I'm gonna we're going to get you home. Um, It is evident that 
that he loved her from the beginning, I felt like, and was entranced with her and, and, and it grew with character as he saw it. They are intellectual matches for each other. Mm-hmm. And when you just click with someone, you just can't explain it. And you kind of see each other in a way other people don't. And they have that. And in his very flawed way, he is attracted to her goodness. Yep. Which is yes. a green flag. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> you know? And again, he does end up growing more towards that than the other way. I do want to bring something up that is new to me. So this is from a video by Dr. Octavia Cox from YouTube, Mr. Rochester's Charade. And it's about 40 minutes of mind-blowing amazingness. So I highly recommend it. I'm using a lot of her words here. And by the way, I recommended her YouTube channel, I believe, before. She has a lot of videos on Jane Austen books. And a lot of her videos are just a question she asks. And she's British, so she sounds smart too. (laughs) But she spends time in chapter 18 where the guests are over Blanche Ingram. Let's talk about that name. Blanche, she is blank. She's... There's nothing there. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. And how about Rochester's name? I don't know. It just sounds like a good, strong British name to me. And real quick, Helen Burns, since we're talking about names still and we've passed her. And this was a great question from our Facebook group, specifically about Helen Burns' name. Close Reads, over at least a couple episodes, talked about her name. Do y'all have anything on that? Well, a burning fever killed her and she stifled her burning passions in life. Yeah. Yeah, that's really neat. And her first name, Helen, means light. She was a light for Jane. Okay, so back to this idea of Mr. Rochester's charade. So chapter 18, they're telling her what they're about to do. And she says, Jane says, she does not understand the term. She didn't understand the term charade because that's what they're about to play. And so Bronte is encouraging the reader to pay special attention to this word. It has two meanings. It's a riddle, a game, like how we play it today. They clearly played it differently then. The second meaning is a deception, an absurd, shallow pretense, a travesty. So Rochester asks her, will you play? She does not want to play. Okay, Jane, don't play. Yeah, that's right. (laughs) (laughs) We're going to come back to that. That's amazing. Wow, I did not catch this. Thinking it that way. Yeah, I mean, a little bit. No, not like what you're saying. And things are probably already clicking in your mind and listeners' minds about this. So this charade, Rochester and Blanche perform the pantomime of a marriage. And we see later, Jane refuses to participate in a sham of a marriage in her actual life. I love it. I love the layers. I love it. Yeah, that's amazing. So there's a second charade. It's Rebecca and Eliezer who showers Rebecca with jewels on behalf of Isaac. Blanche is again playing a future bride. Rochester is again cast as one who is seeking a bride. And Blanche is delighted at the jewelry. And of course, the symbolism and that Jane picks up on is that Blanche is looking for marriage for the jewels. Mm -hmm. And Jane sees their nuptials as a performance as well because of the reasons for which they're getting married. So this idea 
of the levels of charade going on here having to do with marriage. I think this connects the main theme about the novel being the self to the romantic aspect of the novel. The romance is an illustration of the main theme. She will not take part in this. She will not play because she is a whole person. She has principles, courage to live by them. She will speak them. And she will not marry just to marry, no matter how her heart might break or how bereft or she is or in what danger she's in. She contrasts her own plans with how Blanche is. She says, Blanche Ingram behaves differently than I wish to act. And there, Bronte is again drawing your attention to the word act, the other meaning of it. But there's Jane's refusal of Rochester's jewels versus Blanche's delighted pursuit of them. She will not be bought. Blanche can be bought. And Dr. Cox does go into a little bit of the idea of women being bought in marriage or either party marrying for money, that there is the idea of a prostitute here, she thinks, from Bronte. And there is, of course, the historical association with actresses and prostitution. So perhaps Bronte is implicating this entire class who will marry for money, the women being trained to lure men to choose them, which is acting in the pantomime that is the whole marriage mart and the way they approach it. I mean, my mind is exploding over the prostitution right? aspect because I have thought in older books of the idea, and we talked about, like you said, about maybe they just didn't quite get marriage right. And we are all flawed people messing up things in all of our time. So that's not chronological snobbery. That's just, it's maybe an, an, a view. Um, but I have thought it is so interesting that, that it was all about like luring someone into something with all the flashy things and then what would be left. And that's, that's not to say that's how every marriage was, but it is common in books written in that era. And I love the pushback against like, I don't, I don't want to do that. I would rather live alone with a person who I know who they are. Okay. One last point from Dr. Cox's video. So you know how around chapter 24 and later when they're engaged, how it's like weird and kind of creepy. <laughs> right. There's, I was like, just like, this is something I don't understand what's happening here. <laughs> There's, you know, the nightingale, which has a history of symbolizing death. There's a lightning striking their proposal tree. And she has a dream of the baby dying and... And Rochester gets really annoying <laughs> to me. It's like, stop pinching her. What are you doing? <laughs> and he's just called, referring to her as an elf, a sprite, a changeling, an angel. Like, she's no longer human to him. And it talks about he wants to put this chain, this necklace around her neck. But Bronte doesn't use the word necklace. She uses the word chain. Hmm. And that might have implications for how he sees marriage. This is how his marriage has gone. Yeah. And in the third charade, it's him chained yeah. in prison. And his wife is imprisoned. He feels imprisoned. It is a travesty of a marriage. And he continues in these social norms and expectations that kind of reflect that as well. So the solution to the charade... Is bride well? Well, first of all, his actual bride is anything but well. <laughs> <laughs> but there is a history to that term. 
And at this time, it had meant prison or house of correction. Did you know that? I did not know that. No, I didn't know that. The answer is prison. (laughs) When two of the charades were about marriage. Now you can see it as he's getting them to say bride. Yeah. And, And then the third is prison. Well, which prison? It's the Bridewell prison. So there was a generic term Bridewell, but it was also the name of a specific hospital slash house of correction. And it was built by King Henry VIII, and it was later gifted to London. I think I wrote that note down correctly. So the three charades combine marriage with imprisonment, and this reflects where he is. Yeah. And I think even given that, he sees Jane as a lifeline. Because even in his imperfect way, he's it's almost like he's trying to train his affections. He wants so badly to be good, I feel like. Yes. And all these nicknames he has for her and sees her as otherworldly and is trying to place her on a pedestal comes from that disordered place where he is. Mm. Yeah, and we can see places in his life where he has integrity. We've already talked about the way he treated Bertha despite her illness Mm -hmm. shows integrity. Um, The way he cared for Adele shows integrity. He did not believe it was his child. Uh huh. And took her. they pretty much, and Jane doesn't believe it either. Like they kind of threw out the book, like Jane keeps saying, I see nothing of him in her. So, which is still possible genetically if it was, but they had decided <laughs> it's not. And, and right. he cared for her anyway. And he took her in anyway. Um, he treats his servants well. Mm-hmm. I mean, Mrs. Fairfax adores him, adores him. And that's like the same thing with like Mr. Darcy when Elizabeth starts to realize she has the. Ah. That all the servants oh, yeah. are speaking well of him. And she says, like, servants that will just come out and speak that highly and respectfully of an absent master is earned, is a huge indication of character. And Mr. Rochester has that. He's good to his tenants. He's good to his servants. He's good to his ward. So, yes, there's some broken. Yes, there's some disorderedness for sure. But there is an integrity and a deep down kindness that to me overcomes a lot of the things, especially when ultimately he pays for his mistakes, mm-hmm. you know? And so that's the, to me, the beauty of this ending. So the, another question that was asked to the Facebook group is, you know, do you like the ending? Are you rooting for them to get together? Mm-hmm. And it's complicated because as long as his wife is alive, then no, you're like, no, no, I don't want them to get together. But the way it turns out is so beautiful because he, the fire for him gets him out of the prison and becomes a purifying fire. Yeah. And the whole like, while you're in the fire symbolism there of like, and being refined and. Mm -hmm. Yes. And another indication of integrity, he goes in back into the house to to try to save her. He does not stand back and say, well, she, you know, so easy to stand Mm -hmm. back and say, I can't do anything. It would kill me. And oh, well, you know, this is my chance to be free. I mean, he does not do that. He puts himself in jeopardy and mm-hmm. yeah, becomes maimed and blind by trying to save her. Mm-hmm. Um, and that is another purifying. So then that's another purifying thing that we see at the end, the humility that has come back. And that I think is really his main flaw because when I was talking before about his, the way he had just said, well, I'm not really married. She's crazy. So I'm not really married. Like that's pride. Mm-hmm. Right. To say, it does, I don't care what the law says. I don't care what God's law says. I'm going to see this as I'm not really married and I'm going to move forward without Jane's consent. Like, that's just 
that's pride. And by the mm-hmm. end, he has been forced into that humbler state. And I like I validate all the change that happened within him. So, you know, I don't know that I would have felt a call to come back and check on him in any kind of way. But what she found was a changed man. And I think what she showed him by walking away at a time when men often enticed women with jewels and beautiful words into a marriage that was then often immediately loveless about standards of society, not intellectual connection. She showed him that will not work for me. That, that is not, that is not my character. That is not my inner self, my outer self. None of that will do for me. And so when, when he is truly a changed person, she's, she is ready to greet him. And, and she, you know, your eyes were not the thing I loved. Your brain was, I mean, she essentially says that at one point, which is the most beautiful also commentary on aging within a marriage too, of like, the part that you love about them only grows more. I mean, mm. obviously, unless we're talking about dementia or something like that. But as far as just with age and the breakdown of your skin and your eyes and your body parts, like, no, I'm only falling more in love with the part that I came to you for, which is come to marriage for the right thing. Yeah. Well said. That's beautiful. Okay. Before we go, we have to talk about Sinjin. Mm-hmm. <laughs> oh, bless his heart. No, no blessing his heart. He's emotionally abusive. He is. He is. I just think to live your life, and this happens, to live your life so completely for something that you have missed is shocking, but common. And I want to say that gently. It's common. And, And in many ways, I am missing the mark on the thing that I am living my life for, too. I want to remember that. Um... It seems beautiful to live so selflessly for something until you until you know what that thing is and we're we're not called to live passionless reckless abandonment lives for Christ. I mean, passionately go out for his people is is the opposite. And I mean, we knew what what is the word when they would go to another country and teach missionary what missionaries often look like then was was a cultural change as much or more than just like let me tell you about jesus but he respected some things about her that were there and that was wonderful that he saw things about her that were good and noble and rare and that's why she was uniquely suited to be his partner in that but the part he missed was just so painful both for himself for her and just his relationship with christ i felt like I have to read this. I have to, because this is when you talk about it being psychological realism and what a breakthrough book this was, um, to combine this passage with a man who was high integrity, uh, you know, a minister of the church, planning to be a missionary, devout in his work, pure in his life. But then this is also how he treated her. Jane is saying, I found him a very patient, very forbearing, and yet an exacting master. He expected me to do a great deal. And when I fulfilled his expectations, he, in his own way, fully testified his approbation. By degrees, he acquired a certain influence over me that took away my liberty of mind. His praise and notice were more restraining than his indifference. 
I could no longer talk or laugh freely when he was by because a tiresomely importunate instinct reminded me that vivacity, at least in me, was distasteful to him. I was so fully aware that only serious moods and occupations were acceptable that in his presence, every effort to sustain or follow any other became vain. I fell under a freezing spell. When he said, go, I went. Come, I came. Do this, I did it. But I did not love my servitude. I wished many a time he had continued to neglect me. That part was heartbreaking. Mm-hmm. I mean, that a modern therapist would call that emotional control and abuse. Mm-hmm. To use your influence over someone to, he's essentially using control and disapproval to mold her will and her mind to his. And that is not right. That is not right. And, but it was a breakthrough for then concept at the time, at a time when women were expected to fully submit, especially to quote good men. And for Jane to write this scenario, but to say essentially, yes, there are these good things about him, but relationally, he was not a good man. Relationally, he was not worthy of my companionship was a huge statement for her to make. And honestly, like after reading her biography, growing up in the wilds of a small town, more little village in England, I don't know how she got this insight. Like it's really, it's really pretty incredible. Just like Jane Austen. Yeah. Such insight into so many different kinds of people. These were very observant women. Yeah. I think. Okay. I don't know if y'all are going to think this is all. This is, I had a a moment when she, the part that you just read, Trisha, where I all of a sudden just thought about like his teacher-student relationship with her, of I'm going to teach you how to be the person I want you to be, to almost (laughs) uh, Liza Doolittle, where she's pulled out of, and she wants to make him happy, but also he's, he's kind of awful to her, you know? Yeah. Yep. Yep. And this is the final test of her character because she believes that she has no opportunity to go back to Rochester. She doesn't know there's going to be a chance to reconcile that. She has been heartbroken. She thinks her chance at love and happiness has been lost. And here is a man saying, just abandon yourself, put yourself under my protection and guidance, and we will go do this great thing. And it would have been so easy for her to give up and bury those parts of herself, even though she realized it was killing her. She says at one point, if I was your wife, you would soon kill me. But it would have been so easy for her to say, but we're doing a good work. He's a good man. I'm small and obscure, like she says in other places. This is a noble thing we're doing. She believed in his work, even at the end. Fascinating, right? That the last quote is about the good work that he did. Yeah. Yeah. She could have joined him in that. And essentially just said, okay, I'm just going to give myself to this. I couldn't give myself to marriage. This didn't work out. I have no friends, no family. Let me just throw myself into this godly pursuit and find my purpose and my mission there in something bigger than myself. And she will not yield. She will not give up the strengths, the personality, as we've been talking about, the, the mental and spiritual agency that God gave her. She will not give it up. From chapter two of the book, when they're dragging her to the red room, and she says, I resisted all the way. 
to this very last crisis of decision, she will not give up her mental and spiritual autonomy. And that is why this was a groundbreaking book at the time and why it is still so beautiful today. Because Jane shows us so many things about navigating a life, even among people of faith, where faith and culture are being lived out in different ways by different people. And how do I make decisions with integrity for my own soul, my own soul? And what does it mean for me to put God and who he made me to be and that integrity first? That's what that book means to me. And that is an eloquent definition of being a whole person. Uh Yeah. This whole dichotomy between St. John and Rochester embodies the whole theme that it is spiritual biography. Yeah. Mm-hmm. That it is about the self becoming what it's supposed to be. And she loves Rochester because she can be her whole self with him. Yeah. Yes. Yes. And she will not she will not live in sin to have that. Mm-hmm. To have mm-hmm. a man that loves her and will let her be her whole self. But once he turns the corner and it is not going to be wrong for her to be with him, she flies to the person who loves her and wants her for her whole self, even though he is not as righteous or shiny or looks as good as someone like Sinjin did. And this that's why this book made such a splash of controversy. Because from an outside perspective, she runs to the sinner and rejects the missionary. And people who were interested in, you know, upholding the church and the forms of the society that were blasphemy. considered to be the good forms of the day, it was blasphemy. It was blasphemy. Heidi White likes to talk about duty versus desire and how her theory is that all great books are about that. Mm. Clearly this one is passion versus Mm self-mastery. There's so many different ways we can say this. And to your point about the reaction of different factions of the religious of the day, in Karen Swallow Pryor's introduction, she quotes Bronte's preface to the second edition because she addresses her detractors there. I love this so much. I love this quote so much. So she addresses the quote, timorous or carping few who doubt the tendency of the novel. Bronte defends her work by declaring, quote, conventionality is not morality. Self-righteousness is not religion. To attack the first is not to assail the last. To pluck the mask from the face of the Pharisee is not to lift an impious hand to the crown of thorns. Ah, beautiful. Ah. <laughs> I had not read that. I know. Pryor goes on to say, Bronte stakes out her aim to distinguish between the appearance of Christianity and authentic Christian faith and practice. One should read the novel with an eye to the way she makes these distinctions. Wow. Oh. She took oh. us to church. <laughs> Or did she? Yeah. <laughs> that, was, that was awesome. I didn't read that. That wasn't included on to mine. To pluck the mask from the Pharisee is not to raise a something hand to the crown of thorns. Ah, oh, mm-hmm. so good. Yes. So good. And what better thing could we end on? Right. It's an important book. So there's lots of things that we did not get to. Oh, my goodness. We only started our list of dualities in the book. We only started our list of themes in the book. We did not hit on every character. That's what our Facebook group is for. 
So if you don't know, go to Facebook and turn Book Fair Podcast and join our group. There is so much to talk about. I cannot wait to hear what y'all have to say about some of these topics, particularly, do you like Mr. Rochester? What was your feeling about him? What is your feeling about her time at the Brocklehurst Orphanage and um, Helen Burns? What did you get from her? What did you get from Miss Temple? What did you think of Sinjin? And how did he strike you? And would that offer of marriage have been tempting for you? Any other question you want to bring up, feel free to start your own posts. We're going to start some discussion posts, and I cannot wait to hear what you think. And until next time, I'm Trisha. I'm Amanda. I'm Elizabeth. And happy reading. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed this, subscribe to Book Fair Podcast. Join our private Facebook group. Follow us on Facebook and Instagram, or email us at chat at bookfairpodcast.com. And you can help us continue to grow. Share an episode with a friend, mention us on social media, and leave a review in your podcast app. We'll see you next Tuesday.